Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 133. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on November 16th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. I finished the writing of this episode in the Churchill Bar in the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, which is the quintessential smug-filled room, after the meetup of Denver area fans on November 12th. Great conversation ensued. This group of Coloradans knew more about Roger Williams and the founding of Maryland and other topics than your typical Coloradan, and gave me some great ideas for episodes about the history of Colorado, assuming I live that long. That reminded me of one of the most delightful discoveries in doing this project, the idiosyncrasies and the teaching of history around the spectacular country. Aside from college sports, the last vestiges of state identity in most of the country may be the history curricula of local schools, which teach fabulous stories that only the locals know. Texans all learn about Cabeza de Vaca, yet most Americans have never heard of him. People from Wisconsin have all heard of Jean Nicolet, but I hadn't until I read about his fantastic voyage in 1634. And Coloradans know about Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal. Sounds like an excellent topic for an episode in about a decade. It is early spring, 1644, and Europeans are fighting Indians in New Netherland and Maryland. In Virginia, though, it is quiet. It's been 12 years since the Second Anglo-Powhatan War ended after a decade of fighting that began the day the sky fell. March 22, 1622. On that date, Opakankana sprung his colony-wide ambush of the English settlements along the James. Indian soldiers loyal to the Powhatan Confederacy killed almost 400 English and other European settlers on that day, and many more in the years that followed. But peace had come in 1632, and apart from occasional crises that might have triggered war, the old chief had kept the peace. We covered Opakankana and that Second Anglo-Powhatan War in three episodes more than a year ago. Who is Opakankana? Opakankana's War, and After the Sky Fell, which are definitely useful background if you've not listened to them or haven't listened to them in some time. The peace would end on April 18, 1644, and that is the story of this episode. Before we get to that, though, I want to revisit a topic that has bedeviled me since this podcast first got to Jamestown, the proper pronunciation of the names of the famous Indians in the region. Virginians have busted my chops for saying Powhatan's name wrong, Powhatan, Powhatan, and I've struggled to recover from their opprobrium. Imagine my delight to have come across a paragraph on precisely this topic in Helen Roundtree's book, Pocahontas, Powhatan, Opakankana, Three Indian Lives Changed by Jamestown, Roundtree is an anthropologist and has written extensively on the Indian cultures in Virginia in the 17th century. Here's what she says about this fraught question, which, I concede, I probably care about more than you do. Quote, 
The surviving records do not indicate where emphasis was put in people's multisyllable names. And the English sound systems undergoing a change during those decades does not help us either. So here are the ways in which modern Virginians pronounce the names of the main protagonists in the book. Powhatan, Pocahontas, Opie Chan Cano. Back to me. For what it's worth, my Virginian grandfather, who was born in 1901 and plenty educated, said Powhatan, at least according to my memory. So some of this may have changed even recently with the general homogenization of American accents. Clearly, I've been pronouncing Opakankanaw differently than modern Virginians, although only one person has busted my chops on that one, and I can't remember if he was from the region. I've been pronouncing the last syllable like aw instead of o because I read an old account that spelled it that way. But to Roundtree's point, even those old spellings are probably not useful. So I'm going to stick with my long-standing pronunciation of Opakankanaw and hang my hat on Roundtree's main point, which is that even anthropologists and historians don't really know the answer. Glad we got that sorted out. In 1630, there were still, after all the suffering of the 23 years since the first landing at Jamestown, only around 2,500 non-Indians living in Virginia. With the peace of 1632, the growing demand for tobacco, and the much-diminished risk of starvation, English started coming to Virginia in much larger numbers, and much higher percentages of them survived. By 1640, the European and still minuscule black population was north of 10,000. It is worth imagining how this period must have looked to the Powhatans and affiliated tribes. In 1632, a long 25 years after that first contact, as I said, there were only 2,500 English scattered along the banks of the James River, from around Richmond to the mouth of the river at today's Newport News. That's a distance of 75 miles as the very robust crow flies and quite a bit more as the river flows. Assuming, say, 85 miles of river and settlers along both sides, that's only around 15 English per mile. If they were all standing on the banks at the same time, they would be standing a football field apart, including end zones. Since the English were occupying land that stretched away from the river by some distance, the density was actually much lower. It would have been easy for the average Indian to imagine, even in 1632, that the English did not present an existential threat. Of course, Opakankanaw wasn't the average Indian. Long-standing and attentive listeners know from our episode, Who Was Opakankanaw? that he might well have been the same man as Don Luis, who had seen much of the Spanish world and who knew what would happen eventually. Even if he were not the same man, the two were contemporaries who'd lived in close proximity. So the odds are high that Opakankana had heard what Don Luis had to say about the long-term threat of Europeans on their shores. That is why he had launched his ambush in 1622 and fought for 10 years after that, and that is why he would do it again. As the 1630s passed into the 1640s, in some ways, Opakankana was the only constant. The English population grew rapidly, 
and the demographic advantage shifted. The range of English settlements spread, both further away from the banks of the James, but also on the peninsulas between the York and Rappahannock rivers, and then between the Rappahannock and the Potomac. The English occupied almost the entire east coast of today's Virginia and controlled the mouth of every river that fed the lower Chesapeake. Meanwhile, the youngest Indians who remembered the old times before there were no English were now in their 40s. Living, trading, and just dealing with the English had become a fact of life for an ever-growing proportion of Indians in the region. As was the case in New England and New Netherland, the tribes in the region wanted and then needed English manufactured goods. Day-to-day during those years of notional peace, it must have been relatively easy for many Indians of the region to tolerate the English, even if they were worried that their society was doomed in the long term. But it was not tolerable for Opakankanah, now well into his 90s. We know almost nothing of Opakankanah's life during these years, perhaps because a great many records from this period were destroyed during the American Civil War and at other times. Or, maybe, the great chief was growing infirm and just didn't get out much. We do know that in December 1641, Thomas Rolfe, the sole offspring of John Rolfe and Pocahontas, asked permission from the governor to visit Opakankanah, who was a kinsman. We last saw Thomas in 1618 when he was about three years old. His mother had died just after departing London to return to the New World. His father had wisely decided not to risk his only surviving child's life on another Atlantic crossing, and anyway, he probably did not know how to take care of a toddler on the frontier. So Rolf grew up with his uncle Henry in England. He would return to the land of his birth in 1635 at the age of 20, and a few years later would ask to see Opakankanaw. Now, it is said that Opakankana had a, quote, sister, who might or might not have been a true sister in the way we use the word. The English called her Cleopatra, a name even I can pronounce. The record of Rolf's request is, therefore, a bit confusing. It reads in its entirety, quote, Thomas Rolf petitions governor to let him go see Opakankana to whom he is allied, meaning a kinsman, and Cleopatra, his mother's sister. Now, this suggests that Thomas's mother, Pocahontas, was sister to Cleopatra and therefore also sister to Opakankana. This seems a little far-fetched insofar as Pocahontas was around 40 years younger than Opakankana and probably reflects some mistranslation or misunderstanding along the way. Regardless, we know that Rolf wanted to visit the great chief while he was still alive. And in late 1641, this did not seem like a shocking idea to the governor or his secretary. Opakankana's absence from the historical record suggests that he was living quietly, or at least keeping his head down. There were a few crises during these 12 years, people on both sides murdering and such, that might have erupted into another war, but Opakankana seems to have worked out solutions that preserved the peace in each case. Long-standing listeners will recall that before this great attack of 1622, Opakankana had lulled the English into a false sense of security, 
After the marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas, it ended the first Anglo-Powhatan War. He may have been running the same play in the 1630s and early 1640s. And then Opakankanaw heard news that suggested a new opportunity for war. In the summer of 1642, the long-simmering conflict between Parliament and the Crown boiled into civil war. On August 22nd, the beleaguered Charles I abruptly left London for Nottingham and there raised his royal standard, in effect, a declaration of war. The country divided between royalists and parliamentarians, and England descended into blood and chaos. There being both royalists and parliamentarians in the Chesapeake, and routine interaction between the settlers and the Indians, Opakankana soon heard that, quote, all was under the sword in England. He was now very old and could not stand without assistance and was losing his eyesight. But he could still see that if England were at war with itself, the Virginian settlers would be cut off. They might even descend into war amongst themselves. His nation was much diminished, but he could still round up five to six hundred soldiers, including men from Powhatans, Appomattox, Wyanooks, Pamunkeys, Chickahominies, and several other tribes. Once again, he would launch a carefully coordinated ambush across the region. The question then became one of timing. As in 1622, the optimal time would be when the women and children were away from settlements, after the spring planting and during a foraging season. Then in early 1644, more evidence of division among the English emerged. Two London ships that supported Parliament exchanged fire with a royalist ship from Bristol in the James River. The London ships were trying to prevent the royalists from carrying off tobacco, the proceeds of which would support the royal war effort. It might have seemed Opakankana that the Civil War had come to the Chesapeake. There was reason to think it might. Though Virginia was primarily Anglican and royalist, Puritans and separatists, who were usually parliamentarians, had come to Virginia in fairly large numbers. In ordinary times, commercial considerations dominated and they were content to keep to themselves. These were not ordinary times, and the war there might easily have spread to the Chesapeake. If Opakankana was the same man as Don Luis, who spent years in Spain during the Counter-Reformation, he would have understood that religious divisions among the Christians could lead to war. He may have understood that even if he weren't Don Luis. In any case, Opakankana would have realized that he would have one more chance to save his own civilization and would have to be now. The great chief launched his final war on April 18th 1644. Now let's go to James Horn, who describes the moment in his book, A Brave and Cunning Prince. Quote, The attack came at dawn on April 18, 1644, and once again, the English were caught entirely off guard. Most of the fighting occurred upriver in frontier areas where large numbers of English had moved over the past decade and a half. Robert Beverly, a wealthy planter and historian writing at the end of the 17th century, believed that, quote, the massacre fell severest on the south side of James River and on the head of the other rivers, but chiefly York River, where the Emperor Opakankana kept the seat of his government. 
Henrico and Charles City, together with settlements on the York River west of Kiskiak through the Chickahominy's lands, and along the Nansamide and Elizabeth Rivers on the south side, suffered the largest number of casualties. The massive assault lasted two days, during which the Indians killed near 500 Christians. Back to me. Near 500 Christians, if accurate, exceeded the English casualties of the 1622 ambush in absolute terms. It was, however, a much smaller percentage of the population at the time, perhaps 5%, compared to 25% or thereabouts in 1622. You might also be wondering why Horn is citing Robert Beverly, who published The History and Present State of Virginia in 1705, 60 years after the fact. The reason is that Beverly's book, which included some oral history passed along by the old folks of his day, includes one of the only useful and surviving narratives of Opakankana's last stand. The English response to the attack of April 18th was, after licking their wounds, ferocious. According to John Farrar, who had been treasurer of the Virginia Company and played a major role in its early years, the Powhatan Confederacy lost because it failed to follow through on its initial assault. That may or may not be true, but it does seem that Opakankana's hold over the tribes in his group was weakening. Many of them removed themselves from close proximity to the settlements. The English regrouped and consolidated. Six weeks after the first attack, the Grand Assembly, as the colony's representative body rather pompously now called itself, resolved that the tribes behind the attack were now irreconcilable enemies by the late bloody massacre, having most treacherously and cruelly slain near 400 of the inhabitants of the colony. That spring and summer, the English launched reprisals on all Indians allied with Opakankana. Now back to Horn, quote, Small-scale retaliatory raids took place in May and June and were followed by a coordinated plan of attack against peoples of the James River Valley. In the first half of July, soldiers destroyed the main town of the Wyanox and attacked the Nansamods, and in July and August, 300 well-armed soldiers led by Captain William Claiborne, we've seen him before fighting the Calverts in Maryland, and we'll see him again, marched on the Pamunkey's towns, including Men Mend, where Opakankana lived. Evidently, given the care and planning and equipping of the march, Claiborne anticipated either killing or capturing the great chief. Although Claiborne's men destroyed many Indian settlements, the chief eluded them. Finally, in the last action of the summer before the English ran out of powder, an assault on the Chickahominies resulted in the loss of their last town. Back to me. Claiborne's men did ransack Opakankana's house and treasure house or warehouse, which contained the tribute paid to him by those tribes that were still loyal. They burned crops and pursued and killed Indians who fled into the woods. Others they captured, and some of them would be enslaved and sold. And then the English ran out of powder, with little prospect for getting more, given the turmoil back home. In the fall of 1644, the Indians counterattacked. 
The Pamunkeys attacked settlers along the York River, killing some number, taking prisoners, and slaughtering cows and pigs. The English, quote, cried out for soldiers to come to their defense, but without powder, the English could do nothing. Then came a new crisis that might have doomed the English in Virginia. Back to Horn. Captain Leonard Calvert arrived in the colony carrying a commission from the king to seize all London ships and all London estates within the colony. London being a shorthand for parliamentarian sympathizers. Acting Governor Richard Kemp was understandably horrified, knowing that he could not possibly enforce the command and that any attempt to do so might pitch the colony into its own civil war. The situation was further complicated by Calvert's Catholicism and position as governor of Maryland, the colony being viewed by many highly placed Virginians, Claiborne first among them, as an illegitimate fabrication of royal favoritism tainted by popery. That's popery, not popery. Kemp reported the matter to Governor Berkeley. He was back in England for a spell, bluntly. Any ill-conceived attempt to implement Calvert's and the king's orders could easily lead to ruin, especially bearing in mind the English were in the midst of war themselves. Had it not been for powder supplied by the ship that brought Calvert to the colony, he would have been reduced to a single barrel, which would have left the English almost defenseless. Kemp was outspoken about the rebellious temperament of the people generally, who'd been greatly encouraged by news from Massachusetts that Charles' armies had been defeated. I was not a stranger, he wrote, to those people bent to better their conditions under any master. Rumors were circulating about valuable plunder to be had in the houses of wealthy planters sympathetic to the king. And many settlers considered the possibility of a parliamentarian government in the colony rather to be wished for than feared. These were the very conditions that Opakankana had hoped would lead to the overthrow of the English. Back to me. The colony was on the verge of joining up sides and reflecting the civil war in England. It might well have done, if it weren't for the ongoing war with Opakankana's still loyal tribes and the general shortage of powder. And then in October, a London ship of 16 guns appeared off Jamestown and forced Calvert to retreat, putting an end to his attempts to enforce royal orders on the James. Shortly thereafter, another London ship, unironically named a Reformation, arrived under the command of Richard Ingle. This would be bad news for the Calverts in Maryland, but that's another story to which we shall return. Ingle's arrival in Calvert's flight was bad news for Team Opakankana. The parliamentarians had gained the upper hand in England. A fleet of London ships arrived in January 1645 with supplies of powder and ammunition, among other things, for a price. Thusly rearmed, acting Governor Kemp reconvened the assembly and secured authorization for the construction of three small ports at key points along rivers in Indian country. For students of modern counterinsurgency, these were the 17th century equivalent of forward operating bases. Fort Royal and the Pamunkey 
Fort Charles at the Falls of the James, today's Richmond, and Fort James on the Chickahominy, just west of Diaskin Creek, for those of you who know the region well or have the curiosity to look on a map. These were not grand forts in the European sense. They were essentially blockhouses with a palisade, but they would both interdict further Indian raids into territory settled by the colonists and would be supplied bases from which the English could launch raids against Indian villages. By the spring of 1645, a year after the original attack, the tide of war shifted decisively in favor of the English. During the summer and fall of that year, Opakankana's tribes melted away to the west or sued for peace. The English took a large number of Indians captive. I could not find a number, but that is Horn's characterization. The lucky ones, you can't see my scare quotes, were enslaved by planters and put to work in the tobacco fields. Others were sold into slavery in the Caribbean, probably Barbados, where their lives would be short and brutal almost beyond imagining. They were transported on the ship that had brought Governor Berkeley back to Jamestown. In June, Opakankana sent one of the English women who his men had captured, one Margaret Worley, to Jamestown to propose a meeting to negotiate peace. Governor Berkeley agreed and set the meeting for Fort Royal. As in 1623, the English duplicitously set a trap and slaughtered the Indian envoys. Also, as in 1623, the now feeble Opa escaped, fleeing into the forest. Both sides, it turned out, had long memories. For those few of you who are rusty on 1623, the English had agreed to a treaty and proposed to toast it with wine. They poisoned the wine and killed north of a hundred Indians. Might have been close to two hundred. But Opakankana had survived that, too. By the spring of 1646, the third and last Anglo-Powhatan War was winding down. The assembly authorized a naval and cavalry force to track down Opakankana and impose a peace. Back to Horn, quote, A letter sent to William Lintall, Speaker of the House of Commons, reported that, quote, the great savage king, the bloody contriver of the treacherous massacre of our people, is now either not at all, meaning dead, or at least so abandoned by his people, and they so routed, slain, and dispersed, that they are no longer a nation. And what we are now suffering under is rather a robbery from a few starved outlaws than a war. Back to me, at some point that summer, date unknown, the English captured Opakankana and took him into custody at Jamestown. Now we see the curious intersection of the age of chivalry, now breathing its last gasp, and the brutal barbarous frontier informed by the post-chivalric total war still being fought in Europe. Back to Horn, for the end of Opakankana, quote, the great chief's last days were spent in captivity, but he retained his dignity until the end. Opakankana wrote Robert Beverly, by his great age and the fatigues of war, was now grown so decrepit that he was not able to walk alone, but was carried about by his men wherever he had mind to move. 
His flesh was all macerated, his sinews slacked, and his eyelids became so heavy that he could not see, but as they were lifted up by his servants. At Berkeley's insistence, he was treated with all the respect that was his right as a high-status prisoner. On one occasion, however, the chief complained of the great noise of the treading of people about him, upon which he caused his eyelids to be lifted up, and finding that a crowd of people were led in to see him, he called in high indignation for the governor, who being come, Opakankana scornfully told him that had it been his fortune to take Sir William Berkeley prisoner, he should not meanly have exposed him as a show to the people. Opakankana continued brave to the last moment of his life, Beverly wrote, and showed not the least dejection at his captivity. But despite the governor's oversight, he could not preserve the great chief's life above a fortnight. For one of the soldiers, resenting the calamities the colony had suffered by this prince's means, basely shot him through the back after he was made prisoner, of which wound he died. Back to me, the Virginian Robert Beverly, writing with a distance of 60 years, had condemned the killing of Opakankana as base and not in the weirdly complimentary way that kids use the word base today. And it was. Unfortunately, I was not able to find out whether Opakankana's murderer was brought to trial for his offense. After the death of Opakankana, who would not have lived much longer in any case, not an excuse, just a fact, the war quickly concluded. His successor, Nekatoans, the last paramount chief of the Powhatans, submitted to the English in October 1646. He acknowledged subordination to the English and that his people were subjects of the King of England. That king, as it would turn out, would be executed by his own rebellious subjects only 28 months later. Large swaths of the original territory of the Powhatan Confederacy would be ceded to the English by the terms of the peace, and the English would honor even that concession only three years. By the end of the 17th century, the Powhatans would be all but finished in the region, pushed out and reduced by the inexorable expansion of the ever more populous English. Their old way of life was finished. Those who survived would do so within a society now constructed for Americans descended from Europeans. Whether or not Opakankana was the same man as Paquiquinio Don Luis, he surely stands as one of the greatest North American leaders of all time, including those descended from Europeans. He had outlived all his great contemporaries, who included Elizabeth I, James I, Philip II of Spain, Henry IV, and Samuel de Champlain of France, and countless others. He'd outlived John Smith, who was born more than 20 years after him by 16 years. Most importantly, he defended his own people from European invasion for at least 39 years. And if he was, in fact, Don Luis, counting from the ambush of the Spanish Jesuits in 1571, for an astonishing 73 years. If that is true, there are few people in all of human history 
who defended their own people so consistently for so long against such daunting odds. A proper and objective accounting would reckon him as one of our greatest patriots, even if he fought on the losing side. There should be more statues in his honor. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X, Twitter, and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.